0: This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by Safety Focus, ASSP's premier hybrid education event. Join us for Safety Focus February 12th through the 16th, 2024 in Irvine, California, and online February 19th through the 23rd to gain in-depth training on important safety topics and collaborate with expert instructors and fellow safety professionals on real-world challenges. Learn more and register at safetyfocus.assp.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Case for Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited for today's episode about how you can market safety and health initiatives to those in your organization. Here to share her perspective on that, I am thrilled to welcome to the show, the safety geek herself, Bry Sargent. Bry, welcome. So excited to have you on the show. I'm
1: so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm really excited for today's conversation. I know for safety professionals, you know, getting that buy-in from those in your organization is so important in, you know, getting those initiatives put in place and improving your safety and health management system. So I thought we could start by kind of talking about, you know, some of the challenges to that, you know, what are are some of those challenges and barriers safety professionals might face in marketing their programs to those in their organization?
1: Well, I think the biggest challenge is, is that the management team doesn't quite understand what we do right? So when we're hired, they're like, you're just in charge of safety. And they give us kind of like artificial authority because they're just like, well, whatever the safety person needs, we'll, we'll do. But then when it when the rubber hits the road, right, and they actually have to do something on their end, they're like, oh, wait a minute. No, we can't do that. And we as safety people aren't trained to be marketers. We're not trained to sell anybody anything. What we're trained on is regulations. And we got to get past that whole, like, just because it's the law, it doesn't mean they're going to do it. So you have to sell them on it in order to get them to actually make that change.
0: Right. And a way to do that that you talk about is, you know, safety professionals viewing their program as a product. How how can you know safety professionals, as you just know, kind of get in that marketer mindset to you know view safety and health in that way to then sell that to those in their organization?
1: Yeah. So what I like to do is take myself out of the decision-making process. I don't decide what they do in their safety program. The management team decides that. It is my job to create the products and let them buy from my you know assortment of products, right? So when there is a problem or a hazard or something that needs to be fixed, I don't come up with one solution. I come up with three or four, and then I present it to them. So if you think about it, you'll always have like the best practice and the engineering control that you want to put in place. There'll probably be a combination of administrative controls. There'll probably be PPE options. And instead of you just saying, this is what we need to do. And them giving you that artificial, yeah, sure. Go ahead and do it, which then it gets hard to implement. You go, here are all the options, and then you start selling them on one option more than the other as to what are the benefits of going for the engineering control as opposed to just doing PPE. Or maybe we can do a combination of PPE and administrative controls. What are the pros and cons of that? And then you put it into their hands as to what they want to do. And when you look at it that way, when you turn all of your inspection processes, your policies and your procedures... Your safety initiatives and your safety improvements into that mindset of like, I'll create solutions and let them decide what they want to do. It gives you more buy-in, but then it does make you see it as more of a product. And then I do also believe that for each one, you should create a business case and you should create a return on investment for that, that option. And this is how we get our bigger engineering control sold. Because those are easier to create business cases for because they generally have the biggest bang for the buck. Yeah, you might be spending $25,000, but in the long run, you're going to be saving a lot more or generating more money through efficiencies.
0: I'm, I'm curious if we kind of walk through that process, you know, you, you talk about presenting a, a variety of options. I'm curious the, the research and the process that goes into that. Is that you, as the safety professional, thinking, you know, I've identified this issue? here are a number of ways we could rectify that and then just kind of researching each of those options to then present that business case.
1: Yeah. So like, let's say that you have an issue, like one of the issues that I use in a lot of my training is I had a problem where people that were not forklift certified were jumping on the forklifts and using them because we used keyless forklifts. So I couldn't have keys to lock them down that way. So I created a whole multiple options. I wanted like electronic onboard recorders like you have on trucks, right? That was my option. You know, another option might've been training. Another option might've been like a lockout system that was added to the forklift to prevent this from happening. Another option might've been like stronger enforcement and coaching and putting in an inspection process to make sure that. You know they were parked in the right place and that we were making sure that everybody who had it had a card. So for each option, I would then go, okay, what's the cost of this? And what's the likelihood that it's going to solve the problem? And in solving this problem, what does that generate the business? And I like to use the term generate or make money or adding to the bottom line as opposed to save. Because when you use the term save, they just kind of think of it as like, oh, yeah, that may happen. They may not happen. And they don't value it as much as making money. But in my opinion, when a dollar saved is a dollar earned. So even if you're saving a dollar, you're actually making the company that dollar. So we're generating income from it. And you kind of have to know how you're impacting all the other departments. So that way you can make that money that you're generating even bigger than just claims. Because if you're just relying on claims and accidents, you're never going to have enough return on investment, especially once your program starts to get really good and your injury rate is really low. You're not going to have that return on investment by just using claims. So you have to rely on efficiency and quality and productivity and turnover and the way that the customers look at your company. Like a company that that has customers come in and do inspections and they see one operation where the forklifts are driving like crazy and they're in bad shape and there's no yellow pedestrian lines. How are they going to value that product that they're getting from that business as opposed to the company that has all their safety stuff in place? They're going to value it more and it makes it easier for your sales team to sell. So there's lots of impact that we have. So for each option, I create the business case. And I create a return on investment and they can see like, yeah, this one's going to cost you $25,000, but over five years, we're going to get, you know, a 2% return on investment. This one doesn't cost you anything, but your return on investment is like maybe a half a percent, you know? So, and then you put it in their hands and whatever they decide is, is what you go with. Too often we're stuck where, where we get upset that they did not pick our choice. And we're like, well, I'm not going to give them a choice anymore. I'm just going to give them one thing to do. But when you do that, you're limiting yourself. And then you're getting this false sense of authority. And then when you go to implement it, that's when they push back on you. People don't push back on things that they actually had an option in choosing. And they're like, yeah, no, I chose that. I'm not, I, of course, we're going to do it. You know, but when you go to them and say, well, the only option is electronic onboard recorders, and that's all we can do. They're going to fight you tooth and nails through the whole thing.
0: Right, going back to your earlier point, you know, having them as as a key in, in that process, not just going to them with one option saying this is what we need to do, making them a part of that process and that that decision making, so then they have to own it also.
1: Yeah, and sometimes the budget isn't there. Like if it is a twenty five fifty, I've actually done this with projects that were like a half a million dollars. The budget just isn't there. But what you do is you create the big vision and you go, okay, in three years, this is what we want to get to. And here are all the milestones for us to get there. And can you approve this first milestone? Can you give me that? You know, that's another way of doing it. And then once you have your foot in the door, that's a sales method as well, because now my foot's in the door and it makes it very easy for them to say yes to the next milestone and yes to the next milestone. And then you end up getting everything that you want, which is always what I like to do.
0: That's a great, uh, transition into my next question. You mentioned a couple of them there, you know, ROI and kind of doing it incrementally. I wonder if, you know, there's some other techniques like that, that you found to be effective, you know, and getting, getting these implemented, getting that buy-in.
1: Yeah. So what I find effective is first understanding them and understanding their goals and also talking in their language, not talking in my language. So my language is about the people and it is about stopping injuries and accidents from happening. And it's not that our executives and our managers want somebody to get hurt. They don't want their employees hurt. But the difference is, is that the way I judge the risk and the way they judge the risk is completely different. So if I'm talking to them about accidents and injuries, they're not going to believe me because they don't see risk the same way that I do because I'm exposed to it a lot more. But They do have goals. They do have sales goals. They do have efficiency goals. Let me get to know them and let me, you know, find out what their goals are and then match what I want to do to their goals. And then I speak in their language. So how does your company measure success? They're not measuring success by their TCIR. They're measuring success by how many widgets they're selling or how many cases or how many pounds. So let me talk in their terms and then they understand it. That's where you get that whole, well, this injury is going to cost you, you know, 10 cases of beef. And in their mind, they're like, oh, wait a minute, that's (laughs) $10,000, you know, and talk in those terms, as opposed to, you know, this injury is going to cost a claim of $50,000 because in their mind, they don't believe it's going to be $50,000. They believe it's going to be like 2,500, you know, or something like that. So that's one way is talking in their terms. And then the other way is just to remember that these are people. And if I was to go into a store and see a product that I wanted so think about, like you go into a furniture store and the guy is like following you around, right. And constantly checking on you. It's the same thing with safety. You have to know your people. You have to constantly be checking on them. And the way that salespeople work is they change their communication style based on the person. So. Understand how that particular person that you're trying to get a yes from likes to take information in and make sure you're giving it to them in that manner and that you're crafting your message to make it positive to them, to convince them that what you're saying is right. Our job is to be influencers. So we need to influence the decision makers and we are not the decision makers. They are.
0: Staying on on that topic, there's, you know, so many different people involved in this process, you know, from frontline workers to your executives and everybody in between. With, with all of those different groups, as you just mentioned, like what kind of information should you be gathering from them and what kind of information do you they need from you throughout all this?
1: So safety is one of the only areas that has a positive impact on all the other areas. Every area of your organization is positively impacted by safety, and nobody else can say that. You know, when production speeds up, it hurts HR, it hurts safety. It also hurts quality. When expenses get tight, it hurts safety, it hurts productivity, right? So we are the only ones that when we come in, we make the processes more efficient, We actually make them money by improving employee morale. We reduce preventative maintenance costs. We also increase the quality of the product just because people are happy of what they're working and they're following our SOPs. And we're making more widgets or whatever it is your company does. So all of those positive impacts that we have, that's the information you need to gather. The only information that we are always privy to is claims and insurance and the cost of PPE, right? You need to go out to all the other department heads and say, how are you measuring success for your department? And can I get those numbers? And sometimes they don't want to share them because I don't know, they think we're making nuclear weapons or something. But it's like, I need to know how many widgets you make per hour. I need to know how many hours everybody is working. So that way I can use data analytics and trending and see how when you increase on the number of hours employees are working, how it affects my department. And when you're gathering all of that information, you then have to make sure you're using it in a manner that they see a positive benefit for. So that's one side of it. The other side, because frontline supervisors are really the boots on the ground doing everything, they're not privy to all the, they're not decision makers either. So what you need to do is start building positive relationships with them. That means getting to know them on a personal level Making sure that every Monday morning is spent doing rounds, saying, hi, and how was your weekend? And every Friday is like, what are you doing this weekend? Or really getting to know them so that way you know them in a personal level. And then understanding what their goals are. And frontline supervisor goals are different than management goals. Their goals might just be to get out of work on time. Their goals might be to make sure everybody shows up for the day, Right. So craft your message to match their goals, but at the same time, have those positive relationships, because when you go to implement your thing, whatever it happens to be, it's harder for them to push back when they know, like, and trust you. And that's the whole idea is building know, like, and trust. So that way, when you tell them to do something, they're not looking at you as an adversary. They're looking at you as like, this is a person I talked to about my weekends and my wife and my kids and everything. and I just, I can have a conversation with them and talk to them about this. So if they disagree, it's no longer adversarial, it's a conversation. And if you're setting up your communication cadence, right, and your approval process, right, for anything you're doing, this is why I say we're not the decision makers. Their boss or their boss's boss actually approved it. So they really can't say no to you. <laughs> so, but you can come up with a way to make it work because, like, nothing is cookie cutter. So you have to make it work for them, but they can't say no to you because you didn't make the decision. Their boss did or their boss's boss did.
0: You talked about the relationship building there and something you mentioned at the beginning, you know, the safety person comes into an organization and a lot of people may not be aware of who this person is or what they're doing. And there might be some apprehension there. So how how can, you know, they, you gave a couple examples there, but you know, make the, those connections with people that I'm here to help. I'm trying to make things, you know, make things better and safer and, you know, really making those connections with everybody across the organization.
1: Yeah. When I first go into any new company, my first step is to have coffee with every single member of management and ask those questions of like, what are your goals and what are your expectations of me? Not like what my expectations are of them. It's what are their expectations of me are. What do they see as their part in safety? And if they're saying like, I don't want to do anything with safety, you just do your thing Bry, and I'll be completely separate. Then I know that's a supervisor. I need to start winning some hearts and minds over and get them to realize that I can't be the safety police. He has to be the safety police. So, but at least then I have my list of supervisors, my list of managers. I kind of know a little bit about each one and I know where they stand, where it comes to safety and where i need to spend most of my time coaching because that's our role we are the coach of the coaches we are not the people going out to the employees and telling them what to do we have to focus 80 to 90% of our time on those frontline supervisors because they're the ones that need to tell the employees
0: what to do not you i'm glad you mentioned you know, the the safety police cuz i know you know that is how un- unfortunately the, the 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 role is seen in a lot of organizations and Something that safety professionals have to overcome, because you, as I meant, you could have people who are apprehensive who are afraid to speak up uh, and bring things to your attention because you know the the fear of retribution, whatever else it might be, so that's really something that safety professionals might have to overcome, and that relationship building is an integral part of that,
1: yeah, yeah. now there does have to be a safety police in your organization. It just can't be you. It has to be somebody who's in that employee's direct line of power because, we don't have authority over anybody. We're just like this person on the side. We're just like, hi. we're the guy on the side. And anything we say and anything we do, it might be seen as adversarial or it might be seen as like, okay, yeah, bro, I wrote them up. But it really has no meaning because I don't have authority over anybody. And in order to hold people accountable, you have to be able to deliver consequences. And I can't, I can put a note in their file, which may never be seen again so what happens is that like safety is the last department to be added to any organization and the only reason that they add a safety department is because hr is typically overwhelmed with it and they're getting a lot of accidents or maybe in in the case where one of the places i was first hired they were getting sued by the epa and they were like oh yeah we need a safety person (laughs) right so like at that point that's when they bring somebody in right but they don't know what we do. So the way they see it is, oh, we now have the safety person. So anything safety they can do, but we have to educate them that why we can't do it, how we can only be the subject matter experts to guide them and to help them create better policies and procedures. We can't do it because we're not in that line of power.
0: Something we talked about a little bit ago. I'm curious, you go to them with a particular initiative you've done your research say you know the roi is going to be x whatever it might be i'm curious you know about the 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 back end you, you've gotten the buy in you put your initiative in place what what happens next you know the the follow up with those new organizations to kind of keep those conversations going oh hey this was really successful and now you know as you mentioned earlier you can you can ask for the next thing you know you, you get the buy in you put it in place, you get the results you want, you know, then what, what happens next?
1: You have to build on those wins. So like once you, once they've said yes, and you've actually implemented your thing, which first off your implementation should not just be you doing it. It should be everybody doing it. So the moment you get that, yes, this is what we're going to do. You start action planning it out and assigning tasks to all the different members of management. So they understand it's not just you doing it, it's everybody doing it. Like if supplies need to be purchased, I'm not the one to purchase them. We have a merchandising department for that or a purchaser or somebody who's better at it than me, better at negotiating, they should be in charge of that. So you want to make sure that you're not doing everything. And then once it's all implemented, one of the last stages is that you're going to coach and observe and make sure that everything is going the way that it should be going. And then you're going to create kind of like an after action review. This is how it went. This was our anticipated ROI. This is what our actual ROI was. This is how everything is going. And this one document is going to do two things for you. One, you're going to put it in your own personal portfolio. So that way you're racking up that braggable track record of results. And two, you're going to share it with your management team and with your employees. And the more you do that, every time you ask for something else and you are saying the ROI is going to be this, they're going to believe you. And you're going to start to be seen as this person that is adding a lot more value to the organization instead of how safety is traditionally seen, which is like, we're this added department just to take care of things and to make our lives hell, right? So that's how people see safety. It's like, oh God, safety's coming. Let me roll my eyes and just hide it from the safety person. And instead you start to be seen as this person that adds value and helps them reach their goals, but you have to share those results. And if it's a bad result, then you guys have a discussion and you just go, okay, this didn't work out as planned. What do you think we should do about it? Not what do I, what, what do I think? It's what do you think we should do about it? I have some ideas, but I'll share them after you speak, you know, and then you work on it and you try to get that positive ROI again.
0: Right. Cause this is, uh, it's all about, you know, showing that value of safety and how much safety impacts all other aspects of the business. Anything else you'd like to to add as uh, any final thoughts as as we wrap up?
1: My final thought, and we didn't touch on it, is that as you're creating your programs, you guys are really, really good at what you do. I think safety people are like amazing problem solvers. We see hazards and we can fix them. We see problems and we know what the best solution is. But it doesn't matter how good you think you are. You're only as good as the number of people that are going to follow you. So in order to get the employees and the managers to follow you, you have to collaborate with them. So instead of going, here's the issue, and I want, you know, I've got people jumping on forklifts, you know, and driving them. I want EORBs. Instead of that, I go, okay, employees, here's the issue. How do you think we can solve it? Okay, frontline supervisors, here's the issue. How do you think we can solve it? And then I take all of those ideas And then I have a brainstorming session. Maybe I go to my safety committee and I go, here are all the ideas. What do you guys think is the best ones? And then I take two or three of those. And those are the ones that I start to work on. So it's no longer what I want to do. It's what the team wants to do. And then that makes it even easier when you go to implement. Because even if their problem, like their solution was not picked, at least they knew they had a voice. And as long as people know that they have a voice, they're more apt to see like, okay, this is better. And I'll tell you that was eye opening for me because I was always building my safety programs in a bubble. And the moment I started doing that, I realized it made everything I did a hundred times better, just by collaborating. So that's the that's the first stage. And then you get the approval, and then you implement, and then you share.
0: And and, and that's something I've heard from uh, so many safety professionals over the years. Whether it's training or getting that buy-in, is listen first.
1: Listen first. Keep your mouth shut.
0: That yeah, that that, as we've talked about that, listening, that information gathering, so you have the information, the knowledge you need to then do what's best for your organization and all the people working within it, yep, all right. Thank you so much again for coming on. Brian. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Like I said this is something that safety professionals everywhere are are having to deal with, and you've given them a lot of great things to think about. so uh, thank you so much again for coming on.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org. We'll see you next time.